This is the Mystery History Podcast. I am Jordan, and Allison uh, is not recording with me today. I went on vacation, and our schedules when I got back didn't quite line up, so here I am, just recording alone. I know uh, last week I said we'd be back together, but I lied. I'm a liar. There, um, so I'm, I'm a liar, and that's that. I'm a liar. Um, next week, I promise, promise that we are going to be back together. Just talking about dumb stuff, because that's what we do best. And it'll be great. So, look forward to that. But for now, just going to be me. So, before we start the episode, let's get into a little business. We are just about to hit 24,000 downloads, which is crazy to say out loud. Um, I can't believe that many people have heard this voice. That's weird. Just recording this in my uh, apartment. I'm a spare bedroom, and you can probably hear uh, it's like rain snowing outside, so that's, that's about as real as it gets. Just uh, my, my laptop, a microphone, and here it is. But yeah, we're just, we still, I know we say it all the time, but we still can't believe anybody listens at all. We didn't think anybody would listen to start with, and the fact that it's been downloaded 24,000 times is pretty uh, pretty crazy. So thank you all for listening and continuing to listen. We really appreciate you. So on that note, uh, let's talk about the website. Uh, MysteryHistoryPodcast.com is the website. We have all of our episodes up there, every episode we've ever done. We have a merch store. We got some uh, some shirts, some hoodies, some blankets, some clocks. I know, random, but we have clocks up there. Uh, we have a cool shirt that people seem to be loving that's... Um, it's uh, it's a skeleton in a bathtub, and it says "True Crime Till I Die," and he's drinking some beers, so that's a pretty cool one. And yeah, from there we also have from the episodes page, we also have a Patreon page that um, gets you exclusive content. Um, we have two tiers. The first tier is it gets you next week's episode a week early, so right after this you can listen to next week's, and that's that's boom 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 pow, as they say, as the kids say, and. Uh, <laughs> The that's two dollars a month, so it gets you next week's episode now. A ten percent discount code to our online store, and then the second tier is uh, five dollars a month. Gets you next week's episode now. A twenty percent discount code to the store, and then a tw- um, a bonus episode every Friday. So it gets you four bonus episodes a month, and depending on how the month works out, maybe even five episodes. That's a freaking bargain. Is what that is. That's a lot of uh, a lot of us talking. So if you like that, get that. <laughs> That's our sales pitch. If you like that, get that. So I think that is all. Um, oh, on our website, we also have a Discord that um, that you we are trying to kind of start a community of people that are fans of the show that can talk to each other instead of me and Allie just always talking. Um, we don't want to just talk to you guys. We want you guys to talk to each other so we can kind of start a community that way, which is kind of cool. What we think um, to have like-minded people talking about the same stuff. So uh, yeah, there's that. So go check that out. If you're interested, we also got some exciting uh, news. I guess it is. It's a uh, something me and Allie have been talking about for a while. We have a link on our website that allows you to send us a voice message so we can play it on the show. And we got our first voice message. So this is from the, it's a local Lou podcast. Long time listener, first time voice message leaver, local Lou here to tell you that I love the mystery history podcast. You guys have a really conversational tone that makes me feel like we're hanging out talking about weird history stuff. And you've actually covered some topics that I had no idea about. So thanks for all the murderous fun guys. So that's awesome. It's so cool to hear from people. Again, because like you see the numbers and stuff, but you don't really. It's hard to put like to put that in perspective. But hearing stuff like that is amazing. So thank you, local Lou, for sending that in. That's really awesome. We really appreciate it. 
So if you want to uh, send in a voice message, uh, send there's a link on the on the contact page of the website, um, and you can send it in. We'll play it on the air. So thank you again for that message, and we look forward to hearing from to many more of them. So with that being said, I think it is time to finally get into the episode here. And um, if you can read, which I assume most of you can, we know that we're going to be talking about the Bermuda Triangle. So let's get into it. The Bermuda Triangle is also known as the Devil's Triangle. It is a loosely defined region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean where a number of aircraft and ships are said to have disappeared under mysterious circumstances. It's right up our alley. Mysterious. That's what we like here. Most reputable sources dismiss the idea that there is any mystery. Boo. Who uh, who are these reputable sources they, you speak of? Because I disagree. The vicinity of the Bermuda Triangle is amongst the most heavily traveled shipping lanes in the world, with ships frequently crossing through for its ports in the Americas, Europe, and the Caribbean islands. Cruise ships and pleasure crafts, <laughs> ugh, I don't like that, pleasure crafts <laughs> regularly sail through the region and commercial and private aircraft routinely fly over it. I've never heard of it as a personal boat <laughs> being called a pleasure craft. <laughs> That's hilarious. Ew, that's a shirt right there. Get on the pleasure craft. All aboard the pleasure craft. Oh, boy. That'll be a good one. I'll, I'll make that up. Popular culture has attributed various disappearances to the paranormal or activity of extraterrestrial beings. Documented evidence indicates a significant percentage of the incidents were uh, spurious, inaccurately reported, or embellished by later authors. Nah, there's no embellishing in the paranormal community at all. That can't be right. So the origins. um, The earliest suggestion of unusual experiences in the Bermuda Triangle uh, appeared in a September 17th, 1950 article published in the Miami Herald by Edward Van Winkle Jones. That man has too many last names. He has too, too many. (laughs) Two years later, Fate Magazine published Sea Mystery at Our Back Door, a short article by George Sand, normal amount of last names, covering the loss of several planes and ships, including the loss of Flight 19, a group of five U.S. Navy gunmen, TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, on a training mission. Sand's article was the first to lay out the now familiar triangular area where the losses took place, as well as the first to suggest a paranormal element to the Flight 19 incident. Flight 19 alone would be covered again in the April 1962 issue of American Legion magazine. In it, Arthur, author, Arthur, Arthur, author, author Alan W. Eckert wrote that the flight leader had been heard saying, in quotes, we are entering white water. Nothing seems right. We don't know where we are. The water is green, not white. He also wrote that officials at the Navy Board of Inquiry stated that the planes, in quotes, flew off to Mars. So, uh, yeah, that's a little weird if your planes are flying off to Mars. Good enough reason to uh, say that's mysterious, I would say. In February 1964, Vincent Gaddis wrote an article titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle in the pulp magazine Argosy, saying Flight 19 and other disappearances were part of a pattern of strange events in the region. The next year, Gaddis expanded this article into a book called Invisible Horizons. Other writers elaborated on Gaddis' ideas. John Wallace Spencer, um, Charles Berlitz, Richard Winner, and many others, all uh, keeping to some of the same supernatural elements outlined by Eckert. So the triangular area. The Gaddis Argosy article uh, delineated the boundaries of the triangle, giving it vertices as Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico. I was like, Puerto Rico. Poe Rico. That's another t-shirt idea. Puerto Rico. <laughs> Puerto Rico and Bermuda. Subsequent writers did not necessarily follow this direction. Some writers give different boundaries and vertices to the triangle, with the total area varying from 130 million to 309 or 1,300,000 to 3,900,000 um kilometers squared, or that's equivalent to 500,000 to 1,500,000 square miles. Indeed, some writers even stretch it as far as the Irish coast. 
Consequently, the determination of which accidents occurred inside the triangle depends on which writer reported them. So let's talk about some criticism, a little stuff nobody likes, criticism, because uh, everything that happens here is real, okay? That's just science. So Larry Koosh, <laughs> that's, I'm probably not saying that right, but it sounds funny and I'm keeping it. Larry Koosh, the author of The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved uh, in 1965, or 1975, I'm sorry, argued that many claims of Gaddis and subsequent writers were exaggerated, dubious, or unverifiable. Kush's research <laughs> revealed a number of inaccuracies and inconsistencies between Berlitz's accounts and statements from eyewitnesses, participants, and others involved in initial incidents. Kush noted cases where pertinent information went unreported, such as the disappearance of the round-the-world yachtsman Donald Crowhurst, which Berlitz had presented as a mystery despite clear evidence to the country. Or to the contrary, I'm sorry, reading stuff. Another example of the ore carrier recounted by Berlitz as lost without a trace um, three days out of the Atlantic port when it had been lost uh, three days out of the port with the same name in the Pacific Ocean. Kush also argued that a large percentage of, of the incidents that sparked allegations of the Triangle's mysterious influence actually occurred well outside of it. Often his research was simple. He would review period newspapers of the dates reported incidents and find report, reports of possibly relevant events like unusual weather that were never mentioned in the d- disappearance stories. Kush con- <laughs> concluded that the number of ships and aircraft reported missing in the area was significantly greater, proportionally speaking, than any other part of the ocean. In an area frequented by tropical cyclones, the number of disappearances that did occur were for the most part neither disproportionate, neither uh, unlikely, nor mysterious. Furthermore, Berlitz and other writers would often fail to mention such storms or even represent the disappearance as having happened in calm conditions when meteorological records clearly contradict this. The numbers themselves have been exaggerated by sloppy research. A boat's disappearance, for example, would be reported, but if it's eventual, if belated return to the port, uh, it would not be reported. So basically they're saying stuff that's been returned is still missing. Some disappearances had, in fact, never happened. One plane crash was said to have taken place in 1932. What the heck did I just say? 1937 off Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of hundreds of witnesses. Um, a check of local papers revealed nothing. No, 1932. That's a. If you're coming in 1932, anything, quit that thing. I'll say that. <laughs> uh. The legend of the Bermuda Triangle is a manufactured mystery perpetrated by writers who either purposely or unknowingly uh, made use of misconceptions, faulty reasoning, and sensationalism. In a 2013 study, the Worldwide Fund for Nature identified the world's uh, 10 most dangerous waters for shipping, but the Bermuda Triangle is not among them. Hmm. Interesting. Further responses, um, when UK Channel 4 television program, The Bermuda Triangle, um, was produced by John Simmons of Geofilms for the Equinox series, the marine insurance market Lloyd's of London was asked if an unusually large number of ships had sunk in the Bermuda Triangle area. Lloyd's determined that the large number of ships had not sunk there. Uh, Lloyd's does not charge higher rates for passing through this area. United States Coast Guard records confirm their conclusion. In fact. The number of supposed disappearance, disappearances is relatively insignificant considering the number of ships and aircrafts that pass through this on a regular basis. The Coast Guard is also officially skeptical of the Triangle, noting that they collect and publish, through their inquiries, much documentation contradicting, contradicting many of the incidents written about the Triangle authors. In one such incident involving the 1972 explosion and sinking of the tanker VA Fog, the Coast Guard photographed the wreck and recovered uh, the photographed the wreck and recovered several bodies. In contrast, when the Triangle's author claimed that the bodies had vanished, with the exception of the captain who was found sitting in his cabin at his desk, clutching a coffee cup. Yeah, that's a little. I mean, that's just not true. I guess is what that is. Uh, In addition, VA fog sank off the coast of Texas, nowhere near the commonly accepted boundaries of the Triangle. The Nova Horizon episode 
Um, the case of the Bermuda Triangle aired on June 27, 1976, was a highly critical or was highly critical, stating that in quotes. When we've gone back to the original sources of people involved, the mystery evaporates. Science does not have to answer the questions about the triangle because those questions are not valid in the first place. Ships and planes behave in the triangle the same way they do everywhere else in the world. Uh, Let's see here. Skeptical researchers such as Everest, wow, Ernest Taves, not even close to Everest, and Barry Singer, have noted how mysteries and the paranormal are very popular and profitable. This has led to the production of vast amounts of material on topics such as the Bermuda Triangle. They were able to show that some of the pro-paranormal material is often misleading or inaccurate, but its producers continue to market it. Accordingly, they have claimed that the market is biased in favor of books, TV specials, and other media that support the Triangle mystery, and against all well-researched material if it exposes a skeptical viewpoint. Yeah, who likes skepticals? Not me. Benjamin Radford, an author and scientific paranormal investigator, noted in an interview on the Bermuda Triangle that it could be very difficult locating an aircraft lost at sea due to the vast search area. And although the disappearance uh, might be mysterious, that did not make it paranormal or unexplainable. Radford noted the importance of double-checking information as the mystery surrounding the Bermuda Triangle had been created by people who neglected to do so. Yeah, it's just more fun to believe stuff. Who wants to do research? It's more fun to just hear it and you're like, yep, that sounds right. I'm going with that. That's what I do sometimes. Something sounds cool, I'm down with it. That's it. So, hypothetical explanation attempts. Persons accepting the Bermuda Triangle as a real phenomenon had offered a number of explanatory approaches. So here's some paranormal explanations. Triangle writers have used a number of supernatural concepts to explain the events. One explanation pins the blame on leftover technology from the mythical lost continent of Atlantis. Of course, duh, everybody knows about that. Uh, The mythical lost technology. Why didn't you think of that earlier, guys? Sometimes connected to the Atlantis story is is submerged is the submerged rock formation known as the Bimini Road off the island of Bimini in the Bahamas, which is a in the triangle by some definitions. Followers of the purported psychic Edgar Case take his prediction that evidence of Atlantis would be found in 1968 as referring to the discovery of B- the Bimini Road. Believers describe that. Uh, the formation as a road, wall, or other structure, but Bimini Road is of natural origin. Hmm, very interesting. Other writers attribute the events to UFOs. Charles Berlitz, offer, offer, <laughs> I sound British, offer, uh, author of various books on anomalous phenomena. That is a cool phrase. Anomal- anomalous phenomena. That's a podcast name. If you're, if you're about to start a podcast, use that. Anomalous phenomena. That'll get you. That's good. That's sciencey. Um, so sorry, that was a tangent. I'm just reading. Uh, author of various books on anomalous phenomena lists that several theories attributing to the loss of the triangle to anomalous and unexpected forces. So here's some natural explanations. Compass variations. Um, compass problems are one of the cited fa- uh, phrases in the triangle incidents. While some have theorized that the unusual local magnetic anomalies may exist in the area, such anomalies have not been found. Compasses have natural magnetic variations in relation to the magnetic poles, a fact which navigators have known for centuries. Magnetic compass north and geographic true north are exactly the same for or are exactly the same for a small number of places. For example, as of 2000 in the United States, only those places on a line running from Wisconsin to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so that's those are the only places where true north and magnetic north are the same. But the public may, may not be as informed and think there's something mysterious about the compass changing across an area as large as the triangle, which it naturally would. Um, Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is a major surface current, primarily driven by thermo... Thermohaline circulation. Nailed it. Science. 
that originates in the Gulf of Mexico and then flows through the Straits of Florida into the North Atlantic. In essence, it is a river within an ocean, and like a river, it, it does carry floating objects. That's pretty wild. I never thought about there being like, I guess that's what a current is, but it's just just weird. Um, a small plane making a water landing or a boat having engine trouble can be carried away from its reported position by the current. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I never really thought about that. So the next one is human error. One of the most cited explanations in official inquiries is to the loss of any aircraft or vessel is human error. One of the most cited explanations in official inquiries as to the loss of any aircraft or vessel is human error. Human stubbornness may have caused businessman Harvey Conover, Conover, Conover? Wow, Conover. I made that way more French than it had to be. Conover to lose his sailing yacht, Revenick, as he sailed in the teeth of a storm south of Florida on January 1st, 1958. The next one is violent weather. Hurricanes are powerful storms that form in tropical waters and have historically cost thousands of lives and billions of dollars in damage. The sinking of Francisco de Babadillas. That's a fucking nailed that. Can you can I get a holla? Because goddamn nailed it. Francisco de Babadilla <laughs> did not as smooth that time. Francisco de Babadilla's Spanish fleet in 1502 was the first recorded instance of a destructive hurricane. These storms have, in the past, caused a number of incidents related to the triangle. A powerful downdraft of cold air was suspected to be cause um, to be a cause in the sinking of Pride of Baltimore on May 14, 1986. The crew of the sunken vessel noted that the wind suddenly shifted in increased velocity from 20 miles an hour to 60 to 90 miles per hour. A National Hurricane Center satellite specialist, James Lushine, stated, in quotes, During very unstable weather conditions, the downburst of cold air from aloft can hit the surface like a bomb, exploding outward like a giant, um, like a giant squall line in a, of wind and water. A similar event occurred in Concord, or to Concordia in 2010 off the coast of Brazil. Scientists are currently investigating whether hexagonal clouds may have been the source of these um, up to 170-mile-an-hour air bombs. Damn, that's crazy. Let's see. The next one here is methane hydrates. An explanation for some of the disappearances has focused on the presence of large fields of methane hydrates um, on the continental shelves. Laboratory experiments carried out in Australia have proven that bubbles can indeed sink a scale model ship by decreasing the density of the water. What the fuck? You're just sailing in the waters, no more water? <laughs> Man. What the fuck? That's terrifying. Any wreckage consequently rising to the surface would rapidly dis- would be rapidly dispersed by the Gulf Stream. It has been hypothesized that periodic methane eruptions, sometimes called mud volcanoes, may produce regions of frothy water that can no longer be cap- capable of providing adequate buoyancy for ships. In this case, such as an area forming around the ship could cause it to sink very rapidly without warning. Damn, that's like quicksand water. That's nuts. I don't like it. No longer sailing the world. Wasn't going to in the first place, but definitely not going to now. Because you can just sink in the water. That's so fucking wild. Publications by the U.S. Coast Guard describe large stores of undersea hydrates worldwide, including the Blake Ridge area off the coast of the southeastern United States. However, according to the United States Coast Guard, Coast Guard, Coast Guard, Coast Guard, sorry, no large uh, uh, releases of gas hydrates are believed to have occurred in the Bermuda Triangle for the past 15,000 years. Hmm. All right, now let's talk about what everybody wants to hear about. Some of the incidents, the most notable incidents, in fact. So, no boring stuff here. The first one, USS Cyclops. I'm just going to say, cool name. Whoever named that, nailed it. Chef's kiss. Fucking good one. The ship put out to sea from Rio de Janeiro on the 16th of February, 1918, and entered Salvador on the 20th of February. Two days later, she departed from Baltimore, Maryland, with no stops scheduled, carrying the Magnese ore. The ship was 
thought to be overloaded when she left Brazil, as her maximum capacity was 8,000 long tons, or 8,100 tons. Before leaving port, Commander Worley had submitted a report that the starboard engine had cracked a cracked cylinder and was not operative. This report was confirmed by a survey board, which recommended, however, that the ship be returned to the United States. She made an unscheduled stop in Barbados because the water level was over the plimsoll line, indicating that it was overloaded. But investigation, investigations in Rio proved that the ship had been loaded and secured properly. Cyclops, cool name, then set out for Baltimore on Mar- March 4th, and it was rumored to have been sighted on March 9th by the molasses tanker Amalco near Virginia, but this was denied by Amalco's captain. Additionally, because Cyclops was not due in Baltimore until March 13th, the ship was highly unlikely to have been near Virginia on March 9th, as that location would have placed her on her only a, a day from Baltimore. In any event, Cyclops never made it to Baltimore, and no wreckage has ever been found. That's fucking, that's always scary. When, like, things go missing and just nothing, it just vanishes. But, I mean, again, the ocean's huge, so that's understandable, but still, that's creepy. Reports indicate that on March 10th, the day after the ship was rumored to have been seen by the Amalco, a violent storm swept through the Virginia Capes area. While some still suggest the combination of overloaded condition, engine trouble, and bad weather may have conspired to sink Cyclops, an extensive naval investigation included many theories have been advanced, but none that satisfactorily accounts of her disappearance. This summation was written, however, before two of the Cyclops's sis, 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 a lot of S's going on. Cyclops's sister ships, <laughs> Proteus and Nereus, definitely saying those wrong, vanished at sea during World War II. Both ships were transported, uh, transporting heavy loads of metallic ore, similar to that that was was loaded on the Cyclops during her fatal voyage. In both cases, their loss was theorized to have been the result of catastrophic structural failure. Nothing. Now you never want that. I'm just. I'm not a engineer. You don't want that. I know that much. But a more outlandish theory attributes all three vessels' disappearance to the Bermuda Triangle. Rear Admiral, <laughs> I don't. I'm sure that's a very uh, high-ranking guy, but you don't want to be the Rear Admiral. <laughs> Rear Admiral George Van Deers, Deers suggested that the loss of Cyclops could be owe, um, owed to structural failure as her sister ships suffered from its issues where the I-beams that ran the length of the ship had eroded due to corrosive nature, the corrosive nature of some of the cargo carried. This was observed defin- uh, definitely on the USS Jason, way less cool name than the Cyclops. USS Jason, sup? <laughs> uh, and is believed to have contributed to the sinking of another similar freighter, Chucky. Okay, these names are getting worse as we go. Which snapped in two in calm seas. Well, that's fucking scary. Moreover, Cyclops may have hit a storm with um, 35 to 46 mile an hour winds. These may have resulted in waves just far enough apart to leave the bow and stern supported and the peaks of the successive waves, but the middle unsupported, resulting in extra strain on the already weakened central area. On June 1st, 1918, Assistant Secretary of uh, the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, never heard of him, declared Cyclops to be officially lost to, and all hands deceased. Of the seamen aboard, uh, lost aboard, Cyclops was African-American mess attendant Lewis H. Hardwick, the father of Herbert Lewis Hardwick, the Coco Kid, an African-Puerto Rican welterweight boxer who was a top contender in the 1930s and 40s and who won the world-colored welterweight and world-colored middleweight championships. In 1918, a short summary of the loss of the Cyclops was listed in the Navy Annual Report. For a BBC Radio 4 documentary, Tom Mangold had an expert from Lloyd's investigate the loss of the Cyclops, the expert noted that the manganese core, um, being much denser than coal, had more room to move within the holds and even would fully laden. The hatch covers uh, were canvas, and when wet, they become much more slurry, as the load could shift and cause the ship to list, so basically it could cause it to flip over. Combined with a possible loss of its um, engine, it could fonder in bad weather. 
this guy, Tom Mangold, what's your language, man? What you doing there? Fully laden. <laughs> it's a little bit slurry and could fonder. What are you doing, guy? Just using words. Use real words. Good words. Better words. Normal words. Those are, yeah. Man, not words I would use. I'll say that. The next one is Carol A. Deering. On July 19th, 1920, the Deering sailing, um, the Deering, sorry, sailing from Puerto Rico arrived at Newport News to pick up a cargo of coal for delivery to Rio de Janeiro. The ship was captained by William H. Merritt. Merritt was a hero of World War I who had been cited for bravery under fire for saving his entire crew when his previous command, um, the Deering, built five masted schooners. Dorothy B. Barrett was sunk by the German submarine U-117 off Cape May, New Jersey in 1918. Merritt's son, Seawall, what a name, um, was his first mate and had a 10-man crew made up entirely of Scandinavians, mostly Danes. Good thing we knew that. On August 26, 1920, the Deering cleared the Virginia Capes, uh, bound for Rio, but Captain Merritt soon fell seriously ill, and the Deering turned back and put into port, um, put into the port of Lewes, Delaware, to drop off Merritt and his son. The Deering Company recruited Captain Willis B. Wormel, a retired 66-year-old veteran sea captain, to replace him on the voyage to Brazil. Charles B. McClellan was hired on as first mate. The Deering, with Wormel in, yeah, Wormel in command, set sail for Rio on September 8, 1920. Arriving there and delivering its cargo without incident, Wormel gave his crew leave and met with a captain, or with Captain Goodwin, an old friend who had captained another cargo vessel that was docked in Rio. Wormel spoke of his crew with disdain, though he claimed to trust the engineer Herbert Bates, whom Goodwin was acquainted with as well. The Deering left Rio on December 2nd, 1920, and stopped for supplies in Barbados. First mate McClellan got drunk in town and complained to Captain Hugh Norton of the snow that he could not discipline the crew without Wormel interfering, and that he had to do all the navigating owing to Wormel's poor eyesight. Man, this guy's getting... has a rough deal. Later, Captain Norton, his first mate and another captain, were in the Continental Cafe and heard McClellan say, I'll get the captain before we go to Norfolk. I will. McClellan was arrested in a drunken state, but on January 9th, Wormel forgave, forgave him, bailed him out of jail, and set for the Hampton Roads. Uh, the ship was next sighted by the Cape Lookout Lightship off North Carolina on January 28th, 1921, when the Deering hailed it. The lightship's keeper, Captain Jacobson, reported that a tail... A Tale. A tall, thin man with reddish hair and a foreign accent speaking through the megaphone told him that the vessel had lost its anchors in a storm off Cape Fear and asked that the ship's owners, the, C- the G.G. Deering Company, be notified. Jacobson took note of this, but his radio was out and was unable to report it. He also noticed that the, crip- the ship's crew seemed to be milling around on the quarter deck of the ship, an area where they're u- usually not allowed. The following afternoon, the crew of another vessel transisting um, the area spotted the Deering sailing on a course that it would not, or that would directly take it to Diamond Shoals. They, however, saw no one on the ship's decks and didn't attempt to hail the schooner, assuming her crew would spot Cape Hatteras Lighthouse or the Diamond Shoals Lighthouse, and changing course would avoid wrecking to, on the shoals. Spoiler: They wrecked. On January 31st, 1921, the Deering was sighted at dawn by surfman C.P. Brady, who was on lookout at the Coast Guard station Cape Hatteras. The vessel was hard aground, with all sails set on the outer edge of Diamond Shoals. These shoals extend offshore from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, have been notorious as a common site for shipwrecks for centuries, and are known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. Not a place you want to be. Rescue ships were unable to approach the vessel, owing it to bad weather. The ship was not boarded until February 4th, after being batted by the surf for several days, and it became unclear that the schooner had been completely abandoned. Her steering equipment was found to be damaged, 
um, with a wheel shattered, the binnacle box stove in, and the rudder disengaged from its stock. The ship's log and navigation equipment were gone, along with the crew's personal effects and the ship's two lifeboats. In the vessel's galley, it appeared certain foodstuffs were being prepared for the next day's meal at the time of abandonment. The Coast Guard cutter, Manning, attempted to salvage the Deering, but found this impossible. This vessel was declared a hazard to navigation and was destroyed using dynamite explosives on March 4th to prevent it from becoming a danger to other vessels. A portion of the ship's or a portion of the ship's bow later drifted ashore on Orak or I'm not saying that right. Ocracoke <laughs> Island. That's how it is. Wooden timbers from the wreck also washed ashore on Hatteras Island and were used by local residents to build houses. All right, let's see here. Flight 19 is the next one. Um, flight 19 was a training flight for five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers that disappeared on December 5th, 1945, while over the Atlantic. The squadron's flight plan was scheduled to take them due east of, from Fort Lauderdale for 141 miles, north for 73 miles, and then back over a final 143-mile leg to complete the exercise, but the flight never returned to base. The disappearance was attributed by Navy investigators to navigational error leading to the aircraft running out of fuel. One of the search and rescue aircraft deployed um, to look for them, a PBM Mariner with a 13-man crew also disappeared. A tanker off the coast of Florida reported seeing an explosion and observing a widespread oil slick fruitlessly searching for survivors. Um, the weather was becoming stormy by the end of the incident. According to contemporaneous sources, the Mariner had a history of explosions due to vapor leaks when heavily loaded with fuel, as it might have been potentially long search and rescue operation. That's awful. So the next one is actually two separate ones, but they're related. So the first one is the Star Tiger. Back to the cool names. Here we are. On the morning of the 28th of January, 1948, the crew and passengers boarded Star Tiger at Lisbon, only to be forced to return to the airport waiting room when the pilot, Captain Brian W. McMillan, told them that the port inner engine needed some attention. The aircraft took, took off two and a half hours later and was, made what was intended to be a 75-minute refueling stop at Santa Maria in the Ozores. However, the reported weather was so poor that Captain McMillan decided they should stop over until the next day. The following day, the 29th of January, Star Tiger took off for the next leg of its flight to Bermuda despite strong winds. McMillan had decided to fly at no more than 2,000 feet, so it would avoid most winds. An Avro uh, Lancastrian belonging to BSS, or BSAA I'm sorry, piloted Frank Griffin took off an hour ahead of the Star Tiger, and Griffin had agreed to radio weather information back to the Star Tiger. Star Tiger took off at 1534 and soon after takeoff was lashed by heavy rain and strong winds. At first, some 200 miles behind the Lancastrian, McMillan slowly closed the distance between them. Both aircraft remained in radio contact with each other and Bermuda. Second pilot aboard the Star Tiger was David Colby, likely, uh, or likely McMillan, I'm sorry, a highly experienced pilot and ex-RAF Pathfinder Force Squadron leader. By 1.26 on January 30th, after 10 hours in the air, Star Tiger was only 150 miles behind the Lancastrian. The navigator of the Lancastrian managed to fix their position using celestial navigation and found that winds had blown the aircrafts off course by 60 miles um, in the previous hour. By this time, Star Tiger had passed its point of no alternative at which it had diverted to Newfoundland and was committed to remaining um, on course to Bermuda. At about 2 o'clock, Cyril Ellison, the Star Tiger's navigator, fixed the aircraft's position and learned that they had been blown off course and were crabbing away from Bermuda. He gave McMillan a new course, which he turned the aircraft directly into gale. However, McMillan still expected to reach Bermuda within an hour's worth of fuel remaining upon landing. At... 
3 o'clock, Captain Griffin aboard the Lancastrian amended its ETA from 3.56 to 5 o'clock. The Star Tiger, and called Star Tiger to say he was switching to voice telephony to contact Bermuda uh, approach control. Griffin later testified that he heard nothing from the Star Tiger to indicate that it was in trouble, and that until it touched down at 4.11, his own aircraft encountered no turbulence, icing, fog, or electrical storms. A merchant ship, SS Troubadour, had reported seeing a low-flying aircraft with lights blinking about halfway between Bermuda and the entrance to Delaware Bay, which meant that if the aircraft was Star Tiger, then it had gone well off course from Bermuda. This alleged sighting occurred about 2 o'clock in the morning. At 3.04, Officer Robert Tuck aboard Star Tiger requested a radio bearing from Bermuda, but the signal was not strong enough to obtain an accurate reading. Tuck repeated a request 11 minutes later, but at this time, Bermuda radio operator was unable to return or obtain a bearing of 72 degrees, accurate within 2 degrees. The Bermuda operator transmitted this information, and Tuck acknowledged the receipt at 3.17. This was the last communication with the aircraft. The Bermuda operator tried to contact Star Tiger at 3.50, receiving no reply, and thought it had gone over to direct radio contact with Bermuda Approach Control. However, Approach Control reported that this was not the case. The Bermuda radio operator tried at 4.05 to contact Star Tiger, again without success, and trying again at 4.40, he declared a state of emergency. He heard no distress message, and neither had anyone else. Even many receiving stations were listening to Star or even though many receiving stations were listening on Star Tiger's frequency. On the 30th of January, 1948, a press dispatch reported that the plane's loss at 440 miles um, northeast of Bermuda. British South American Airways, or BSAA, was an airline created by former World War II pilots in an effort to provide service on the previously untapped South American trade and passenger routes. Originally named British Latin American Air, or Blair, it was split off um, from the British Overseas Airways Corporation to operate in South Atlantic routes. It commended, or commenced transatlantic services in 1946 with BSAA, uh, with a BSAA plane making the first operational flight from London, London's Heathrow Airport. The airline operated mostly Evro aircraft, Yorks, Lancastrians, and Tudors, and flew to Bermuda, the West Indies, and the western coast of South America. All right, so the next one here is the Star Aerial. The Star Aerial was one of the three enlarged and improved versions of the Avro Tudor designated Mark IVs. On the 17th of January, Jan- wow, January twice, huh? All right, go me. On the 17th of January, 1949, the Star Ariel was awaiting flight instructions at Kinley Field, Bermuda, with no passengers. BSAA Tudor G AHNK Starlion, meanwhile, suffered an engine failure on approach to Bermuda, landing without incident. Star Ariel was promptly pressed into service to take G AHNK's passengers on to their destination of Kingston, Jamaica. Star Ariel took off at 8.41 with seven crew and 13 passengers. Weather conditions were excellent, and her pilot, um, Captain John Clethla McPhee, decided on a high-altitude flight to take advantage of it. About an hour into the flight, McPhee contacted Kingston by radio. In quotes, I departed from Kenley Field at 8.41 a.m. hours. My ET at Kingston is 2.10 p.m., I am flying in good visibility at 18,000 feet. I flew over 150 miles south of Kinley Field at 9.32. My ETA at 30 degrees north is 9.37. Will you accept control? And then at 9.42, he quoted, I was over 30 degrees north at 9.37. I am changing frequency to MRX. No more messages were received from the Star Ariel, and Kingston finally reported her overdue. That was the last anybody heard of it. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Think about those people, too. They just got switched to this other play, and then it got lost. Oh, God, that's awful. Oh, oh, terrifying. All right. The next one here is Douglas DC-3. Captained by pilot Robert Lindquist, assisted by co-pilot Ernest Hill and stewardess Mary Burke, 
The aircraft ended its Miami San Juan leg at 1940 on January, or wow, not even close, on December 27th. Um, Lindquist informed that the local repair crewman that a, a landing gear warning light was not functioning and that the aircraft's batteries were discharged and on low water. Unwilling to delay aircraft's scheduled takeoff from Miami for several hours, Lindquist said that the batteries would recharge by the plane's um, generators en route. Lindquist taxied NC-16002 to the end of runway 27 for takeoff, but stopped at the end of the apron due to lack of two-way radio communication. Although capable of receiving, Lindquist reported to the head of Puerto Rican Transport, who had driven out to the aircraft, that the radio could not be transmitted because of the low batteries, agreeing to stay close to the San Juan until they were recharged, allowing uh, to uh, allow two-way radio contact, NC-16002 finally lifted off at 22.03. After circling the city for 11 minutes, Lindquist received confirmation from CAA at San Juan and told the tower that they were proceeding to Miami on a previous flight plan. The weather was fine with high visibility, but the aircraft did not respond to subsequent calls from San Juan at 23.23. The Overseas Foreign Air Route Traffic Control Center at Miami heard a routine transmission from NC-16002, wherein Lindquist reported that they were 8,300 feet, um, at 8,300 feet, and had an AT- ETA of 403. His message placed the flight at about 700 miles from Miami. Transmissions were heard sporadically throughout the night by Miami, but not, or, but all were routine, I'm sorry. At 4.13, Lindquist reported that he was 50 miles south of Miami. The transmission was not heard at Miami, but was monitored at New Orleans, um, some 600 miles away, and was relayed to Miami. The accident investigation report issued by the Civil Aeronautics Board said that the pilot may have incorrectly reported his position. Uh, Miami weather was clear, but the wind had moved uh, from northwest to northeast, the accident investigation report transmitted that the wind change information was neither Miami New near wow Miami nor New Orleans that's a tough nor New Orleans New Orleans was able to contact the flight so it is unknown whether NC16002 received it without this knowledge the aircraft could have drifted 40 to 50 miles off course which widened the search area to include hills in Cuba, the Everglades, and even the Gulf of Mexico waters. On January 4th, 1949, two of the bodies were found uh, 50 to 56 miles south of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. It is unknown if they were connected to the missing plane. No further, nothing further was heard from Lindquist, and the aircraft has never been found. In subsequent years, researchers... Um, Explained disappearances have included the flight among the others to say have, have disappeared um, to, sorry, that was a weird sentence. Basically, they said that it is it was because of the Bermuda Triangle that it disappeared. A plane similar to the DC-3 had been found by divers in the Bermuda Triangle. It is not possible that this aircraft was lost, however, to verify its certain parts and registrations are needed. All right, so we got the last one here. The last one is the Connemara 4. A pleasure yacht was found adrift in the Atlantic south of Bermuda on September 26, 1955. It is usually stated in the stories that the crew vanished while the yacht was surviving being at sea during three hurricanes. The 1955 Atlantic hurricane season shows a hurricane, uh, I'm sorry, hurricane alone, Passing nearby, that's the name of it, what a weird name for it, Hurricane Lone. Uh, Hurricane Lone passing nearby between the 14th and 18th of of September, with Bermuda being affected by winds and almost gale forces. In his second book on the Bermuda Triangle, Winter quoted that he had received a letter from Mr. J.E. Chandler of Barbados. On the morning of September 22nd, Connemara 4 was lying um, to a heavily mooring, uh, was lying to a heavy mooring 
in the open roadstead of Carlisle Bay. Because of the approaching hurricane, the owner strengthened the mooring ropes and put out only two additional anchors. There was little else he could do, as the exposed mooring was the only available anchorage. In Carlisle Bay, the sea in the wake of the Hurricane Janet was awe-inspiring and dangerous. The owner of Connemara 4 observed that she had disappeared. An investigation revealed that she had dragged her moorings and gone to sea. So I lied to you. Again, second time today. This one's the last one. KC-135 Strata Tankers. On... The, on August 28, 1963, a pair of U.S. Air Force KC-135 Strata tankers aircrafts collided and crashed into the Atlantic 300 miles west of Bermuda. Some writers say that the two aircrafts did collide and the two there or didn't collide, and there are two distinct distinct crash sites separated by over 160 miles of water. However, Kush's our boy Kush. Um, Kush's research showed that the unclassified version of the Air Force investigation report revealed that the debris field defining the second crash site was examined by a, re- a search and rescue ship and found to be a mass of seaweed and driftwood tangled in an old buoy. So basically it wasn't a plane, it was just seaweed. So that just about does it for the Bermuda Triangle. I just thought this would be an interesting one to look at because... A lot of people know of the Bermuda Triangle, but not really much about it. I know I didn't. I just have heard about it, and it's like just someplace you don't want to go, and that's about all I knew. So it's kind of cool to look into some of the actual things that took place and stuff like that. Again, it's probably just it's probably uh, just f- accidents, but it's still it's more fun to believe the uh, the fantastic that it's something, some uh, gateway or something like that. So let me know what you think of the Bermuda Triangle. Is it, a, is it really a, a crazy place, or is it just a place where things happen to happen? Like, is it just a, a coincidence? Pretty interesting to think about. So on that note, I'll leave you to think about it, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye!